Okay, we continue in our look at the Sermon on the Mount. Notice the artwork behind me. There are nine messages in the Beatitudes, the first part of the Sermon on the Mount. There'll probably be eight messages, uh, but we're about at the halfway point here. As we look at marvelous mercy, marvelous mercy. And so here is the theme for today. As we look at the Sermon on the Mount, we've already seen that we're blessed if we're poor in spirit, if we understand how truly sinful we are uh, before God. Uh, And then we're also blessed if we mourn over that sin, if we mourn over the sin in our own lives, and we mourn over how sin has affected the world. And we're blessed if we're meek, if we recognize again our sinfulness, and that makes us humble before God, and it makes us humble before other people, as we recognize, as we interact with people in the world, that, that, that we're sinful, and, and, and they're, they're sinful, and, and it, makes us, it makes us meek in our responses. And then if we're meek, and we recognize how sinful we are, then we're going to hunger and thirst for righteousness, that we want the righteousness of God, because as we learned this morning, that righteousness is God's plan for our lives, to be holy, beautiful, like our Savior, Jesus Christ, And all this is a free gift from God. We don't deserve it. It's all of God's mercy, the marvelous mercy of God. So here we have Matthew 5, 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And so here we see a a promise of blessing um, in the future as well. But there's a condition. If we are merciful, then we will be shown mercy. So as we look at this one verse, I've got five points, and these are the thoughts that will be hanging uh, those points on, creator, condition, Christ's call, and then caution. So let's pray and ask God to give us understanding as we seek to be people of mercy. Lord, we thank you so much uh, for the gift of music, for um, just the way that we're able to praise you through that and um, to worship you through that. Now I pray that our worship would extend into hearing your word and, and being um, deeply affected by your word through the power of the Holy Spirit. I pray that your Holy Spirit would work in us, that he would be active now, transforming us as, as we come into contact with your word. Lord, make us changed people. Make us merciful people for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you want to understand mercy, we have to understand our creator. Our understanding of mercy is based on the character of God. So we're going to begin with this theological understanding of what mercy is, okay, the mercy we've received, and then how we need to be people of mercy. So that would be a shorter outline, if you will. In Luke's understanding of the Beatitudes, he says this, and he links it to the character of the Father. He says, be merciful just as your Father in heaven is merciful. Right, so we see this, this mercy is wrapped up in the character of God. And as we look at God's character and we see how he's revealed himself progressively in Scripture, really the clearest revelation as God speaks of himself to another person concerning his character is Moses in Exodus chapter 34. And I can't really overstate the importance of this passage uh, that, that Moses records for us because it's repeated again and again and again throughout the law and the prophets, because it's such an important passage, because God is revealing his glory to Moses here. And what is central to God's glory is his mercy. 
Now, as we understand the concept of mercy, we'll see in a minute how it, it kind of flows out of God's love. But in the Bible, translators will switch compassion and mercy in and out. It depends on which version you're looking at and in, in, the, in the translator and how he wants to, to translate the word. But this passage here in Exodus 34, uh, the children of Israel have failed by creating two golden calves and this pagan worship, and Moses has destroyed the two tablets, and, and he's having this interaction with God, and he's pleading with God to um, you know, forgive the people and, and go with them if they're going to travel any further. And, and, and Moses wants to know the glory of God. So God reveals his glory to Moses here. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, his covenant name, and that concept of God being a covenant God is important as we understand mercy because God's covenant relationship with his children results in consistent mercy with them because he's not going to break his covenant. He's going to keep his covenant. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate, the merciful and gracious God is slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, and yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Now, we need to hang on that last phrase there. Uh, in the, it's highlighted in white, that he doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. So as we look at our understanding of mercy, it's bound up in the character of God, and these are the attributes of God, right? So when we look at the attributes of God, typically theologians, they divide up in all different ways, and the ways that are divided up aren't necessarily... You know, Scripture doesn't say divide up the attributes of God in a certain way. They don't even talk about the attributes of God. They talk about the character of God, and we divide them into attributes, right? But the easiest way is God's greatness and God's goodness. And His greatness are those things that we'll never be. We'll never be omniscient, omnipresent. Uh, you know, we'll never be omnipotent, right? Those are, those are alone gods. Those are incommunicable. He doesn't communicate those to us. But His attributes of goodness are things that He is... And that's how we see how he interacts with us, okay? And those are things that we can be. He's communicated that to us as those creating the image of God. So, so all that to say is we look at God's holiness, truth, and love. God acts righteously. He is righteous. It is transitive holiness. That word transitive means how does God's holiness translate into his interaction with us? How does that translate? It's transitive. His truth, obviously, is faithfulness. He speaks truth, and he's always truth. He's never not truth, so he's, he's faithful to that, to us. And then love. Love is the biggie, right? And so God is love, right? And that's an important attribute for us. And, and so we see out of that love come his mercy and compassion and his grace. And as we understand mercy and grace, sometimes they're used uh, together, and it, they seem so similar. It's like, are, which, are you talking about grace? Are you talking about mercy? Are they the same? Well, there is a distinction to be made. And so I leave it to men who are much smarter than me to make those distinctions. Uh, Wayne Grudem says this, God's mercy means God's goodness towards those in misery and distress. We have to understand our condition as sinful fallen people that we, you may not call yourself this, but, but we are miserable. We're, we're, we're in the words of the theologians, pitiful. We are to be pitied because in our sin we're so helpless and, and incapable. And God relates to us in love, even though we're that way. God's grace means God's goodness toward those who deserve only punishment, right? So there's this judicial, this 
this, this courtroom, you know, you were guilty, now you're not guilty. And grace means you deserve to be punished, but you're not punished. You've been pardoned. And then closely related is God's patience. God's patience means God's goodness in withholding of punishment toward those who sin over a period of time, right? And isn't that us, all of us, right? We all sin over a period of time in our lives, and God is so patient with us. He's so merciful. Another theologian says it like this. He says, grace is an aspect of mercy. It differs from mercy in that it has reference to sinful man as guilty, while mercy has respect to sinful man as miserable. The one refers to the culpability, right? You're guilty of sin. The other to its wretchedness, right? That we are wretched in our sin. But you know, when you think about God's mercy, God's mercy wouldn't be manifest apart from us being sinners. So God has always been merciful, right? Because that's who God is. But when he created Adam and Eve in the garden, he created them perfectly without sin, and he wasn't exercising mercy towards them because they weren't in sin. They weren't wretched. They weren't pitiful. They weren't miserable. But the moment they sinned, the very moment they sinned, God began to manifest and exercise mercy in their lives. And so Charles Hodge says this. He says, as sentient, as, as creatures with sensations. That word sentient means uh, you, you see, you touch, you feel, uh, you smell, you hear. Some of us hear. Okay. We are beings with sensation. And that's how we understand God's goodness, right? Apart from your senses, how would you understand the goodness of God? Right, and I would say as believers, we have another sense. We have this Holy Spirit of God who gives us even further sensation. But as sentient creatures, he says, I'm sorry, as sentient creatures are necessary for the manifestation of God's benevolence, so there could be no manifestation of his mercy without misery or his grace and justice if there were no sin. So he's saying apart from us being sinful and wretched and pitiful and miserable, he wouldn't have to exercise mercy. But because he's always loved, that capacity for mercy has always been there. So we understand what mercy is because of who God is. And we're going to tease this out more. So definitely here there is a reference to our condition. We need the mercy of God. We are desperate without the mercy of God. Because of sin, we are in desperate need of God's mercy. Right? When you consider humanity, let's look at the pluses, right? We don't forget the pluses, right? We're creating the image of God. That's huge. We bear the image of God. We are loved by God. Every single person who has ever lived has been created in the image of God, and they are, in some senses, loved by God. Not everybody is loved equally, right? Because some of us are loved as his children. But these are the pluses. But the negatives are pretty bad. And they really tell us our need for mercy, right? We are rebellious. We are hostile. We are sin- These are all can be taken straight from Scripture. We're rebellious. We're hostile. We're sinful. We're, we're blinded. We're ignorant. We're enslaved. We're hopeless. And we're dying. This is not a good condition for somebody to be in. Yet, all of us born into this world are born in this condition, This is the nature of humanity apart from Christ, right? We are in rebellion against God. And because we're in rebellion against God, we rebel against each other. And it results in all types of destruction. 
of each other, of the world. There is disease and there is hunger because of of our sinful condition. We are enslaved to sin. We are at war with one another in our closest relationships. We are susceptible to depression. We are enslaved to sin. That is our condition that necessitates the manifestation of God's wonderful mercy. And so out of the depths we cry to you, O Lord. Hear my voice. Let your ear be attentive to my cry for mercy. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I am faint. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are in agony. There is a constant cry throughout the scriptures. As man recognizes his condition, as humanity recognizes their condition, and they cry out to God for mercy because we can't do anything to help ourselves. Just like the two men that were blind on the side of the road, they could do nothing to remove their blindness. They were completely incapable. They were, in a sense, enslaved to blindness. They couldn't do anything about it. And so they said, Son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus had compassion on them. Wonderful, merciful Savior. Jesus had compassion on them. So I have a question. How does God remain just and holy while at the same time blessing pitiful and undeserving sinners? You could say, how does God remain just and holy while exercising mercy? Does God's justice conflict with his mercy? Right, Because the passage we read in Exodus 34, which really is that, that moment that defines God's character, his love, his graciousness, and his mercy, he says there at the end, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. So how does God exercise mercy towards sinful humanity if he has to punish sin? And the answer, praise God, is Jesus. That's how he does it. Mercy can only be manifest when sin has has been forgiven, there's a typo, when sin has been forgiven, wrath removed, and justice has been satisfied. See, God can't deny any part of his character to manifest mercy in your life. God has to remain completely just and completely holy while exercising mercy in your life. And Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 3. Paul tells us how God can be just and holy and righteous and yet still be merciful to us, pitiful, rebellious, hostile sinners. Romans chapter 3. Just this magnificent declaration of the salvation that's ours in Christ and how that came to be. God presented Christ is a sacrifice of atonement. And that word there should be propitiation. That's a theological word that says that when Christ was crucified on the cross, he took the wrath of God that we deserve because of our sin. He is a sacrifice of atonement. How? How did he do that? Through the shedding of his blood, right? Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. You don't earn it, no. It's received by faith. Now, why did he do this? Because he had to uphold his character. He had to remain righteous and just and holy while exercising mercy and grace in our lives. He did this, Paul says, 
to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished, and he did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to remain just. He's still just, but he's also the one who justifies those who have faith in Christ Jesus. There had to be the shedding of blood to maintain his righteousness and justice and holiness. As we consider the biblical narrative, we consider from Adam up to the time of Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, the the scriptures tell us here that in his forbearance, he left sins committed beforehand unpunished. So God was able to exercise mercy as soon as Adam and Eve touched that fruit. They should have died. Instantly, but God exercised mercy. On what basis did God exercise mercy? Well, as God set up a system of worship through Moses, he began to get foreshadow what was going to happen. If you know anything about the Bible, there was this very elaborate system of worship, worship given to uh, the children of Israel. And it is the very centerpiece, the very centerpiece of their worship was this ark called the Ark of the Covenant. In the ark was contained the Ten Commandments um, and, and Aaron's, Aaron's rod. Um, but this ark had a lot of symbolism. There are two cherubim, one on each side of the top. Cherubim represent judgment. And we see this clearly in Scripture because Adam and Eve, when they sinned in the garden and God passed judgment, they were cast out of the garden and the way in and out of the garden was guarded by two cherubim to cherubs or cherubim, and they were to stand there and stand guard. They were a sign of God's judgment over sin. You may not come back into the garden. You may not come back into my presence. And so this Ark of the Covenant was the centerpiece of worship, and once a year, the high priest would come in, and he would sprinkle blood on the the space in between the two cherubs. And this place is called the mercy seat. It's called the cover of atonement. And the author of Hebrews relates to this. He says, as he's talking about this this worship system, this altar area, he says, the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant was covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, these symbols of judgment overshadowing the mercy seat of these things we cannot speak in detail. So again, once a year, the high priest would come in and he would offer, he would make atonement for the sins of the people. And he would sprinkle blood onto that that cover of atonement to take away the sins. And the place where he sprinkled the blood was called the mercy seat. And this foreshadowed Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross, that his blood would be shed to take away our sins, that he would be the propitiation for the wrath of God that he would die in our place, us miserable, pitiful, incapable sinners, that he would die in our place. Jesus did that for us. It's only through the blood of Jesus that God's mercy can be manifest to us. Without the forgiveness, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And the author of Hebrews talks about it like this as well. He says, for this reason, he, Jesus, had to be made like them, fully human in every way, talking about us, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service of God, that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. 
So how is it that God can remain perfectly just and holy and righteous while at the same time blessing those that, who, those that deserve death? It's through Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Mercy can only be manifest when sin has been forgiven, wrath removed, and justice satisfied. And that was done through Christ Jesus. Now as we consider the manifestation of God's mercy to the world, again, all the world needs God's mercy. Only when you come in faith do you receive that mercy of God that results in salvation. But the world does receive mercy from God. We call it, and again, mercy and grace, can, can, they, they, they kind of come together at some points. We talk about common grace, that God causes the sun to shine and the rain to fall. He gives all of humanity, he gives them wonderful gifts, family. He gives them food. He lets them enjoy his creation, right? And this is even for people who are hostile and rebellious towards God. God blesses even his enemies, those who hate him, those who despise him, those who deny his existence. He still gives them wonderful gifts. And that too is through the blood of Jesus Christ offered as an atonement. Again, the wages of sin is death. So every person, whoever sins, should die, but God exercises mercy. He doesn't just punish their sin. He gives them blessings. So through Jesus, God mercifully forgives our sins. The mercy of salvation. Scripture speaks clearly of God's mercy as he forgives sins, right? Yet he was merciful He forgave their iniquities. He did not destroy them. Time after time, he restrained his anger. He did not stir up his full wrath, right? So we have, in a sense, this negative aspect that God withholds the punishment that's due, that God withholds his wrath. He does not treat them as their sins deserve. It's kind of a negative aspect. Micah talks about this as well. He says, who is like you, God, who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. So so God, God withholds punishment that's due, but he also blesses. He delights and to bless, to bless us even though we don't deserve it as merciful, hostile, rebellious sinners. He still blesses us. So through Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ, God does not treat us as our sins deserve. He mercifully forgives our sins. He does not punish us as we deserve. And we read about this earlier in Lamentations, right? Because of God's, the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. Aren't you so glad for that truth? They're new every morning. His faithfulness is great. No matter how entrenched we can be in sin, no matter how ingrained we can be in a sin habit, no matter how many times we can fail in that same sin that we have cried out to God, God, I don't want to do this again. Don't let me do this again. I don't want to do this again, God. And you do it again, and you get up the next morning, and you cry out to God, and he says, I forgive you. They're new every morning. But also we see that through Jesus, God mercifully gives us spiritual and eternal life and the blessings of heaven. Again, it's not just withholding wrath, not punishing our sin, 
It's the blessing of eternal life. And we see this in Ephesians chapter 2, right? The context here, Paul has tried to show this contrast between our condition and God's great salvation. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were darkened in your understanding. You were hostile and alienated from God. But because of God's great love for you, God who is rich in mercy, he made you alive with Christ even when you were dead in your transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. There's no, no person who is, if you're dead, you have no capability. There's no ability whatsoever. God's mercy has to be manifest in your life. And in love, he exercises that mercy through Jesus Christ. It's by grace that you've been saved. See that combination of mercy and grace? So we've seen the creator, the condition, we've seen Christ, and now the call, right? Because as we look at this particular beatitude, blessed are the merciful, if you exercise mercy, then you will be shown mercy. Right? It's, it almost seems like a quid pro quo, but it's not. So this call here is that as those who have been shown such marvelous mercy, we have been called to be merciful. That's the call in our lives, right? In Romans chapter 12, in view of God's mercy, offer up yourselves as, as living sacrifices to God. Live merciful lives because you have been shown so much mercy. How do I do that? You need to have your mind renewed, right? You are dead in your transgressions and sins. You have come to faith in Christ. You've been set on this, this path of faith. And if you want to know how to live, if you want to know how to please God, if you want to know how to be merciful, you have to renew your mind. And then you'll know, he says. You'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. You'll know how to be merciful. So we're called to be merciful. Now I'm going to give some examples of mercy from the New Testament here. Ways that you can exercise mercy. To be merciful, we must see the world as Jesus does and not respond with, and respond with mercy, not religiosity. How tempted are we to look out at the world and start passing judgments about the world? Like, they are so bad. Did you read that? Could it get worse? Those people are so bad. What do you expect? Can it get any worse? Yes, it can get worse. Should you be surprised when it gets worse? No, you shouldn't be surprised. Because, friend, you were just like them, dead in your transgressions and sins. So we can't look at the world like Pharisees and, and hold the world to some standard that, that you can't live up to. Right? This humanity that we described, Jesus looked out with compassion. He saw the crowd and he had what? He had mercy on them. They didn't have people leading them as they should. This is the context, right? The, the leaders of the day weren't leading them according to the word. But you can translate this principle to the world at large. Do you think Jesus Christ looks out at whatever ex-neighborhood that you think is one step away from Sodom? Do you think that Jesus looks out to them and doesn't have compassion? I think some people on social media do. So this humanity that is, (laughs) this is the condition, and Jesus looks out with compassion And Jesus says, look, I didn't come for people that are healthy. I came for people that need a doctor. I came for sick people. 
People who need my mercy. He says, go and tell them this. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I've not come to call the righteous because they don't need me. I've come to call sinners. Sinners need mercy. And so Jesus tells us, he says, look, he says, I desire mercy. So when you look out at the world, stop passing some kind of political judgment, some kind of pharisaical judgment on people, expecting them to live up a standard that they can't possibly live up to because they're not born again. We can't do that. Jesus doesn't do that. Now, does this mean that we, there shouldn't be standards, that certain things aren't wrong? Yes, God has standards. There are certain things that are wrong. We shouldn't applaud them. But when we look at the world, have compassion. Be merciful. I like this next one here. This is one of my favorites, and I don't know why. It's probably because I don't like to be cold at night. But when God exercises mercy, he does it in the smallest ways. So, You're like your father in heaven when you alleviate the smallest of suffering in a person's life. And and Sam went through this. No, maybe he didn't. I think I'm I'm confusing Deuteronomy with Exodus right now. But in Exodus 22, God is teaching people how to love here. Love God with all your heart, soul, your mind, every fiber of your being. Love your neighbor as yourself. What does it mean to love my neighbor? Well, if you lend money to any of my people who are in need, do not charge interest. This is money under wood. If you take your neighbor's cloak as security for a loan, you must return it before sunset. This coat may be the only blanket your neighbor has. How can a person sleep without it? If you do not return it and your neighbor cries out to me for help, then I will hear, for I am merciful. This seems like the smallest thing, doesn't it? The cloak. The only thing a person has to keep warm at night. Very small thing. God cares about that. He cares about that. And so the smallest alleviation that we can offer, right? Sometimes like, well, it's not a big deal. I mean, it's not a big deal. No. If you're offering something to somebody who can't do it for themselves and they really don't deserve to have you do it for them, that is mercy. And you are emulating the character of God and the love of God through Jesus Christ. We're also merciful like our Father in heaven when we patiently direct, oops, when we patiently, it's going to the wrong one, we're merciful like our Father in heaven when we comfort those in affliction. This is important for us in the body of Christ. Second Corinthians, Paul launches into discussion about comfort. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who is he? The Father of mercies. The Father of mercies. Oftentimes, I interact as a pastor with people in the body of Christ who think they don't have gifts to offer to the church. Like, they don't, it's like, I'm a nobody. I mean, what can I do? Well, you can pray. And you can speak words of encouragement. You can be present in somebody's life as they're going through a trial, as they're going through suffering. Somebody says, I don't know why I went through this suffering. Could it be that God led you through suffering to teach you lots of things, but for the very purpose that you can be present in somebody's life to offer mercy to them in their time of need? Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. 
so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. God comforts people through his word, through his spirit, and through his people. Never underestimate the role that you'll play in somebody's life by just being there and listening to them. It's somebody who's been through the trial before, perhaps, but maybe not. We're merciful like our Father in heaven when we patiently direct the wayward back to the truth of the gospel. This is something I struggle with. I struggle when people walk away from clear truth that I think they should understand and shouldn't begin to question. Like, what happened to you? Did you bump your head? How did, did you wake up an idiot today? I mean, that's kind of what goes through my mind. And, and that is not mercy, okay? Jude, and Jude, Jude, Jude is excoriating the false prophets. Like, he's really hard on them. And here's what he says. He says, be merciful to those who doubt. Be merciful to them. We're all a work in progress. God is dealing with us, each of us, at a different pace. You don't know what God has brought into the life of that person that would begin to make them question certain truths. Don't give up on them. Don't cast them aside. Don't write them off. Don't call them a heretic necessarily. No, be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by the corrupted flesh. Meaning, as you encourage them, don't get caught up in their sin. We are merciful like our Father in heaven when we alleviate the suffering of our enemies. Because of time, I'm not going to spend a long time here, but most of you are familiar with the story of the Good Samaritan. A person was traveling on the road from Jericho. He was beaten up and left for dead. A Levite walks by, a very religious man who should understand Exodus 34, walks by and says, I'm not touching that person. I don't have time. I don't want to get dirty. A priest comes by, basically says the same thing. But then the enemy, the very enemy of the person who's laying there on the road comes by, a Samaritan. And he helps the person. He shows mercy. And so as Jesus is teaching what it means to love a neighbor, he talks to the Pharisees at the time. He says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus said, go and do likewise, right? Matthew chapter 5. Love like your father loves. He has perfect love. He prays for those who persecute him. He loves, he loves those who hate him with tangible love. Love in the same way. Be merciful in the same way. Love your enemies. We're merciful like our Father in heaven when we overlook others' offenses. This is important. In everyday interaction, sometimes we come into conflict with people, and that conflict is difficult to resolve. And sometimes in the midst of that conflict, we get the other person in a position where you know what, they're kind of cornered and they're wrong and you're absolutely right. And you've been wanting to be right for a long time and now you're finally right and right now you can throw that verbal dagger right into them and put them out of their misery. But you choose not to say the very thing that would wound them, that would put them in their place. You're overlooking an offense. You're being merciful. Proverbs 19.11, a person's wisdom yields Patience. Remember that connection between grace 
and mercy and patience. It's a person's wisdom that yields patience to, to one's glory to overlook an offense. And I brought this one in because this is, this is every day. This is where we live. Mercy is best seen in the spirit you display when you unexpectedly find yourself in a position of power over someone who has mistreated you without cause. Are you vindictive? Do you feel an overwhelming urge to exert your rights? Right? This is where we live every day. And mercy says, no, you withstrain, you withhold. You don't treat them as their sins deserve. You treat them like you've been treated by your merciful Father in heaven. So we've seen creator condition Christ called now the caution, right? Now I get to address that issue of quid pro quo that I talked about a minute ago because Matthew 5, 7, blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy, right? So the idea here is that if I don't show mercy well enough, then God's not going to show mercy to me one day when I need mercy. Is that what's being said here? Well, certainly God's command to all of us is to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. Right? That's what God expects of us. And in the parable of the unmerciful servant, right? You guys are familiar with this. A king, come, he, he decides he's going to collect his debts. Okay, and there's this man who owes this king 10,000 talents. It's like, that's like the amount of money the federal government owes. It's more money than you can imagine. The person can't pay it back. He couldn't pay it back. He cries out, forgive me, forgive me, master. The master forgives him. And what does that man do? As soon as he's forgiven by his master, as soon as he receives this great forgiveness that he didn't deserve, this debt that he couldn't repay, he goes out and he knows somebody who owes him a hundred days worth of wages and he starts choking the guy. He didn't understand mercy. He didn't understand forgiveness. So this is what's going on here. Then the master called the servant in. He said, you wicked servant, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. And Jesus finishes up by saying this. He says, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. So, so there's this kind of scale going on, right? Acts of mercy, right? Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the forgiven, for they will be forgiven. Blessed are those who forgive, I'm sorry, for they will be forgiven. So is there this scale going on? This works-based approval by God? No, that's not what's going on here. Jesus is saying, look, unless your heart has been transformed by Jesus Christ, unless you understand in your heart through faith what forgiveness is because you have been forgiven, unless that's who you are, then you won't be merciful. Then you won't be a forgiving person. One commentator says it like this. He says, if I am not merciful, there is only one explanation. I have never understood the grace and the mercy of God. I am outside of Christ. I am yet in my sins, and I am unforgiven. James, the brother of Jesus, cuts it, cuts it clearly. He says, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, the law of love. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. 
Again, we don't do acts of mercy so that we can receive mercy. We do acts of mercy because we've been transformed by Jesus Christ. And we can't help but to be merciful because we've been shown so much mercy. And that's the kind of mercy that triumphs over judgment because you have been forgiven. Your sins were judged on Jesus. And when you stand before God one day, he'll say, welcome into my presence, you merciful and forgiving person. You've been washed in the blood of Jesus. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. So maybe mercy is an issue for you. Maybe you struggle with that. Maybe you've never experienced the saving mercy that God offers through Jesus Christ when you come by faith. God understands where you are regardless. I love this. I love this about the Bible. God understands. He understands the struggle that you face. He understands the condition of the miserable. Why? Because his son took on a human nature and lived in our sin-cursed world. Did he ever sin? No, he didn't sin, but he was surrounded by sinners and he was affected by their lives. He understood how desperately needed they needed mercy because he had a human nature like us. And so in Hebrews, we read this. That's not Hebrews. 